Hi there, I'm Andy Cave. You're listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast, where we delve into people's stories, their adventures, their partnerships, the places they love, and find out what makes them tick. Here's a taste of what's in store. Mum and Dad saved up the supermarket tokens, and you could buy experiences with them. So for Christmas, we all got a half day doing something, and mine was climbing. I liken it to Harry Potter. He doesn't know that he's a wizard until he gets a letter. A climber raising a non-climbing family, and I found my people. Palm sweating, and that night I couldn't sleep about it. You know, the epitome of bold in British climbing. So that's where the seed was planted in my mind. I couldn't, I couldn't admit it to myself or to my friends or put the pressure on myself. And I still had to chalk up before I even left my house. I was packing my bag and my hands were sweaty. <laughs> I put my hand in my chalk bag. Maybe intuitively we think the more we fail, the worse we're doing, right? Obviously every failure is a sign that you're pushing yourself enough and you, you will learn from every one of them. So, Angus, welcome to the Rab Mountain People podcast. Great to chat with you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Not not too bad, considering. Um, first of all, how do I pronounce your surname? Oh, Kill. It is Kill. Yeah, like okay. like murder or death. <laughs> yeah. Right. So no one's going to mess with you, really. So. No, not if, they, not if they know my surname. Absolutely. So where are you? Where are you based? Where are you sitting right now? Which part? Uh, Bryn Revel, North Wales. Awesome. I know Bryn Revel. Beneath Fakwen and yeah. Great. Exactly. Just Fakwen's just out the window there. Lovely. So I mean you've got bouldering just down literally close to the house. Yeah, when it's not like perpetual rain, it's okay bouldering. Yeah. Yeah. Really yeah. lucky. I hear what you're saying. So how are you surviving these unusual COVID times? I mean, what what pretty well to be honest. Um it could be a lot worse. Fortunately, we've got a board uh, to climb on and plenty of books to read, a nice fire to sit by, concentrating on the things that we can do rather than all the things we can't. Um, and yeah, life's not too bad considering. Have you done anything new or learned anything new during lockdown? Anything that you might not have done otherwise? Or About listening to podcasts. What have I been reading? Um, I suppose I get a bit more done. I think I've been reading about the Stoics. <laughs> Some philosophy <laughs> didn't do a lot more training than it would otherwise uh, get to see my local area actually a lot of little paths and stuff and around by the lake and up back when and in some ways get to keep in better touch with friends because everyone knows that you just sat inside so yeah. yeah you can keep in touch with the people that yeah you ought to keep in touch with a bit more brilliant yeah no and it's, it's really interesting that sort of making much more of the local and i mean i've been thinking about that a little bit in terms of goal setting like you know, and maybe before it would be, you know, Patagonia, America, whatever, and suddenly actually coming over to North Wales seems like it's going to be amazing because I haven't been able to come for so long. And and so it's like resetting, you know, uh, not to say that I don't want to go further afield, but it's, it, it is interesting. Do you find it interesting to, to chill, you know, downtime, rest days? Are you all right with that? Because some climbers are almost so psyched that they can't sit still. Yes and no. Like, I, I I do love sitting by the fire and reading or just listening to a podcast. And I think when I'm on a trip, I'm pretty good at doing a rest day. 
But on the other hand, when lockdown first happened, I was anxious. I thought, like, I've got to be doing something. Now's the time to be doing all, I've got to learn another language or whatever. And so I felt a bit anxious. I think I've got better at it now and know that uh, I'll have a better time um, focusing on what I can do and what I can't. So that's kind of a bit of a shift. But on the whole, I think I'm pretty good at relaxing. I still do, I don't know, if I'm listening to a climbing podcast, I'll get really anxious thinking, oh, I really want to do that route or I really want to go to that that place. And you say Patagonia, I'm like, oh, no, I do actually really want to go to Patagonia. Why have I not been spending hours thinking about that? Well, thinking about big walls and places like that, we want to get into that and some of you, the adventures, I'm really looking forward to chatting about that. But to start with, I wanted to take it back a little bit, think about the beginning. I mean, even before you started climbing, I think you were 14, weren't you? But I was just wondering, you know, what was going on before then in terms of were you into sports, other sports, other other passions before climbing or? Um, yeah, before climbing, what did I like as a kid? I liked Lego a lot. <laughs> I played with Lego a lot. I thought Lego was really cool. And I did climb a lot of trees. I started, I think, with chairs and then got up to tables and it was about four. I was doing a lot of ladders and then trees and stuff. I just thought that for some reason getting off the ground was really good fun. I, I think it, it confused me that people only really bothered with two dimensions. You know how people just knock about on like... Pavements and things. Yeah, pavements and things and pretty much on one plane. Whereas I thought as soon as you're off the ground, you're already having an adventure. I thought anything that could be made to get off the ground, like like a paper planes as well, anything that could be made to fly, I like that as well. So I just thought... I think I pioneered a lot of new routes in the up the trees in my local park or whatever. But climbing, when you discovered climbing, how did that come about? I mean, had you been on a, on an outward, you know, an outdoor centre course with school or anything like that? Was that the link, or how did it come about? Yeah, do you know, I think a lot of things come together. I think uh, we did like walking and stuff with our parents. There's four four of us, four kids in our family, two parents, you know. We did a lot of walking and stuff. So we're already a bit of an outdoor thing. And then did like an outdoor week at school. And that was amazing. I think every minute of it, that was good. And it did confuse me that only a small bit of it was climbing because I thought that was the coolest bit. But um, what it really came about was when I was still quite obsessed with climbing things. I didn't really, it wasn't just rock climbing. I didn't really know much about rock climbing at all. But mum and dad saved up these supermarket tokens, these Tesco tokens that you got with your club card or something and you could buy experiences with them. So for Christmas, we all got a half day doing something each and mine was climbing. I actually had to wait six months <laughs> through the year for it to be any good weather until mum and dad had time to drive us to the nearest place that would like accept this coupon. And that was South Wales. So when I was 14, I got this half day with this climber and the other person that was supposed to be on it, the other kid, for some reason didn't turn up so I had one-on-one -on -one with this climber who was just who was really cool basically he had this like if I asked him any questions about climbing he could answer them as if they weren't silly questions and he had all these words he had like a whole vernacular um, of words for things that I would have thought too abstract to put a name to so he had like words for how you would move and like what you'd hold on to and like a crimp and stuff, and he could talk about it. And any question I asked him didn't seem stupid. It was like, yeah, no, climbing's really cool, isn't it? And he'd keep talking about it. And anything he, he gave me, I'd be, I'd, I'd be, you know, willing to try. And I couldn't believe that this guy was grown up and still thought climbing was cool. And that was like most of what he seemed to do. 
he had all these stories of these trips he'd been on and he had named routes and stuff and I couldn't believe it. So at that moment, I realised that climbing was a thing that you did out, outside of school trips. I thought it was kind of a, a kid's activity, a bit like, a bit like abseiling, it's an activity, but people didn't do it. But he was a guy that thought climbing was really cool, even though he was grown up. And then I was like, ah, I've found my people. <laughs> it's a bit like, um, I liken it to Harry Potter. You know that he doesn't know that he's a wizard until he gets a letter. Nice. <laughs> it was like I was a non-climber raised in a, cl- in a climber raised in a non-climbing family. And I'd found my people. I love that. That's a fantastic description. Thanks for sharing that. You know, weirdly, like I was really into climbing trees, but I didn't discover climbing till I was sort of 16, 17. So I was still climbing trees in my area when everybody else had long stopped. So I was seen as a bit of a weirdo. And then fortunately when I discovered climbing, I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is like a, there's this whole world with, with guidebooks and people doing it and you can do it into adulthood and it's not seen as being weird. Nescliff, I mean, you were, you were brought up close to Nescliff, is, is that right? So, I mean, how did you, is that where you started climbing or was it like, did you do other things after this day out? Yeah, after that day out, um, I was convinced that I had to get into climbing somehow. And I found a lad at school in my year who was, well, he had a mutual friend and I knew that he had like maybe been to a climbing ball. I think he'd been to like Liverpool or something once with his dad and his dad had done a bit of caving. So we made friends really quickly and he rummaged in <laughs> under the stairs, I think at his parents' house and dug out his dad's old caving equipment, which included a rope, four wires, and two cams and I think enough quick doors to go with the wires and that we we had a rack then and he also had a couple of climbing magazines and from that we could glean how you climb that you <laughs> you put the things in the rock and that you clip up. and yeah we started climbing like that unfortunately Nescliff it, it was like a bus ride away or two buses from school but only one bus from his house so I think I, I would jump the train fare to Shrewsbury and then either get a bus or get his mum to give us a lift and we, we could just um put slings around trees and top rope stuff most of the time so it wasn't all sketchy but I think we, we got to leading pretty quickly and it was there's not much easy stuff at Nescliff so it was pretty sketchy and we definitely didn't have the best technique or that we learned to, to climb safely by trying every other way first I think. Nescliff is I mean it's almost like this underground dark horse cliff isn't it that you know, once you've been and you're into it, but for a lot of people are like, sorry, Nescliffs, where's that? But I mean, it, it's big, isn't it? It's really impressive with these incredible features, big flying arets and and, and, and corners and cracks. And and I, I've only actually, I've not been much, but the, what I remember is that the rock is quite soft, isn't it? It's a sort of sandy, like as you're climbing it, the grains are kind of coming off. The rock yeah. you, you never it. climb the same route twice. <laughs> And, you know, um, I would just think, you know, some lots of quite well-known climbers have left the mark there, you know, you, you Nick Dixons and, and all kinds of characters. So I would imagine there's there's quite a sort of niche scene there, isn't it? And, yeah, yeah. Like we, we definitely knew Nick and he was someone we looked up to. And Ed Booth as well. He was, he'd been taken under Nick's wing and sometimes Nick's strong mates would visit and stuff and or we were excited when we heard about these cool climbers coming along and we thought Ed was the coolest guy. 
and I suppose if those are the kind of people that you're looking up to, you kind of I say you progress quickly. Your ambitions grow quite quickly. I don't know if your your actual climbing level keeps up with it, but absolutely. I mean, you talk just to give people perspective because there might be people listening who are not necessarily from a rock climbing background, but you, you're talking about Ed Booth and Nick Dixon. I mean, I think at one point Nick Dixon had done more E nines or something than anybody else in Britain. I think even more than Johnny Dawes, and he, he liked to mention that to Johnny, which is quite amusing. But you know, and, and for people that don't understand it, in traditional climbing which is climbing without bolts where you're placing things into the rock. Uh, E9 is kind of up there. You know, it's a pretty elite club. So for you to sort of even be rubbing shoulders with these folk early on must have, you know, it's going to influence you in terms of, I don't know, were they giving you advice or was it more like still hero status at that time? Um, It's definitely started with just hero status. Like we were starstruck just to see these guys at the crag, you know, we, we would spend as, as many weekends as possible just running around the woods at Nescafe. It was a cool place to spend your adolescence, I suppose, as you've described it. And sometimes we bump, bump into them and get really excited. Nick is, I don't know how well you know Nick, I expect you know him fairly well. He's definitely the kind of person that will encourage you <laughs> to do something sketchy rather than put the brakes on and be like, oh, yeah, that, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> he's, not like the, he's not too careful about um, egging you on or anything. Excellent. So yeah, that's gonna that's gonna sort of push you. So a few scrapes, I would imagine. And and your journey into working in outdoor education and moving to Wales. How did you get from this lad with his mate, with his dad's sort of caving kit and being pushed by people like Nick and Ed, and then you know doing Indian face? Yeah, there's a big gap uh, there. After school, I went travelling for a couple of years. I ended up in New Zealand, did some did a bunch of travelling. Basically, didn't do any climbing. When I came back from that, I'd done a lot of crap jobs and had a lot of really good times and learned that I didn't want to work indoors and if at all possible, I wanted to be outdoors. And what I really liked about travelling and the job I ended up with in New Zealand. And I came back and um, just volunteered with the Duke of Edinburgh's group that I did my DV award with. I just thought, God, yeah, like if I get a free lift <laughs> out to Wales... I get to spend some time outside and maybe I'll get back into climbing again it'll be great and also started working at the local bouldering wall that sprouted up um so just got back into the things that I wanted to do and it all just sort of fell into place I'm mostly working on this equation of how can I do as much climbing for as little work as possible but it's also convenient that I could do that with the Duke of Edinburgh's award group and and then with other groups and um I got qualified in my outdoor stuff and ended up driving around the country for any work that would that could come to somebody that was like had no experience like me and ended up doing lots and lots of different sort of work with different people with different client groups and that was really cool really good experience and um that naturally um funneled, funneled me into North Wales where I could probably do the, do as much climbing as possible and also work I just wanted to sort of move into sort of Indian face on Cloggy. Again, there might be people listening that, that don't really know what that climb is. Um, could you help a little bit and just describe um, the cliff, where it is, and a little bit of the history of this sort of iconic route? So, yeah, Cloggy's like most of the way up Snowdon. The uh, Clogwind station is like three quarters of the way up the Clamberis Railway. 
and it looks out at this black cliff. That's kind of what it means in Welsh. And it doesn't get much sun. It's kind of, I describe it as a cathedral of rock. And it's one of the most impressive rock faces in Wales. North facing, it, it, the rock is kind of quite snappy. It's very mountainous. Quite a lot of texture to the rock, little weird holes and sort of... Yeah, yeah. And not, not a lot of gear. And a lot of the kind of early routes were done there. And it was also the where the first, maybe the first E8 and the first E9 was Indian Face. So Indian Face already had a reputation. Um, even before it was done, it was a line that was sort of quite coveted and Johnny Dawes and John Redhead kind of competed for it. And... Yeah, when it was done, it was it was seen as like a thirty-nine in Britain, a real breakthrough into a new standard, where if you fell, you know there was there was no reasonable gear to catch you, and um, there was no margin for error, and it was this perfect, featureless, really faint line of this huge great wall. And so when I first heard about it, it would have been hearing hearing that story of Johnny and then knowing that Nick had done it as a second ascent and we knew this really hard as nails climber at the, the crag that had done it. And, and then I think people in the local climbing shop, High Sports, would have people come and talk. I think you might have done a talk there at some point. I think I did. I met Ed there. As a, he's a young lad once, yeah. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> I think I was just before, um, just before my time, like a year or two. In fact, the money from those talks went to buy my first pair of shoes. It was like a huge step up towards climbing. It was a miracle when that happened. And so we would always go to these talks. I think Tim Emmett came. And I remember that evening being the most uncomfortably psyched I'd been ever. I was, I was 15 then, I think. And I just remember it was how I would feel now if I had three really strong coffees. But I was, it was just talking about climbing or his base jumping. And I begged my parents to buy me his book for Christmas, which was a month away. And he signed it and I had to wait till Christmas to open it. And he put um, Angus, you know, go big or go home. And in that, the, near the beginning, it has Neil Gresham's account of Indian Face. I remember reading that and my palm sweating. And that night I couldn't sleep about it because I was thinking about it so much. And that count sets it up as the you know the epitome of bold in British climbing so that's where it, the seed was planted in my mind brilliant yeah I mean just again people might not know so we you know we talked about Ed and we talked about Nick Dixon and, and I always think Nick wow he is sight you know sort of like bulging eyes as he's sort of recommending a route to you Tim's a whole different level of psych, psych isn't he slightly different but you know like Nick I would think it's I feel like I've had two coffees Tim it's like I've had just way, way, I don't know how much I've had, but I've gone way beyond. I feel like I've had six coffees. I mean, he's, he's a good mate, but it, it's quite something. So I'm just, I can imagine how psyched you are at this point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so you've been climbing for how long? How old were you when you, when you thought, you know what, I want to walk up and have a look at Indian Face and sort of drop a rope down it and see what it's all about? How old were you then? So that was... 2018 so I would have been 25 but it was it wouldn't have been a case of oh I'm going to walk up and try Indian face I couldn't convince myself that I was to that standard but I also couldn't get rid of the idea of it that it was there and you know maybe I could do it I'd done a, a few E9s by then and were like hardy eights and that was always in my head and 
I got my mate to lower me down it, Tom Livingstone. I got him to lower me down it after we'd um, been climbing Great Great Wall or something. And after I tried the moves, I oh, I, I couldn't get it out of my head because I knew that actually it probably was possible for me, even though it was this really really hard route, and I didn't want to sort of be as sort of arrogant to match myself to the reputation of this infamous route. I also thought, oh, actually, well, maybe it is possible. Maybe I could do that. And, and then I couldn't get rid of it. And I would do these secret missions up from, I was living in Slamberis at the time. So I'd just walk up with an 80 meter rope on my back and go and rig a rope and play on it on my own and try being not to tell quite, anyone. Being quite secretive about it because you didn't, maybe you didn't want to put pressure on yourself. No. And I also, I was also a bit embarrassed actually. I just, I was particularly nervous that my ego was a big part of this. You know, I'm just doing this to, because I consider that a really big route, a big bold route. And maybe people would associate me with a similar reputation to that route. I don't know. I don't feel that way now, but beforehand I was really worried about what my motivations were. I couldn't work out why I wanted to do it. And I would bring it up in conversation. I remember particularly Ed Booth, like we had a long drive down to Fenners, that mate's stag. And we talked about it along the way, along the whole journey. And I, I couldn't get him to sort of repeat back to me what I, how I felt about it or justify how I justified it. I couldn't get him to sort of say the same thing back. And he just agreed that it was an amazing route, but he couldn't justify it. I was like, oh no. So I remember talking to Emma Twyford about it and she was just like, no, it's a death route. Never, never know. It's silly. I thought oh, I felt so embarrassed having brought it up, but like the, the insolence of some plucky kid trying to match himself to this reputation. I felt terrible. It's really interesting. Isn't it? You don't know whether different people, how they respond. And some of them might be almost like looking out for you a little bit. Uh, and then other times it might be that people feel threatened almost, you know, or something. I don't know that you're going to be, I don't know. Maybe it was more of, looking out for you really I get the impression I mean I remember I can't remember what I'd done but I abseiled down and it just happened to be on the line it was quite a long time ago and it was unchalked it's, it's a dark cliff and I just remember thinking wow and I was almost relieved that I was like yeah I don't have to do this <laughs> I didn't even I just looked at the holes and I sort of knew obviously the history of it um, and it's like wow I don't know it is it I think the thing that struck me was that whereas I've not climbed that grade, but when I've done hard things on grit, it happens really fast. It flows through like extended boulder problems when you're doing head pointing where I've practiced things. And but I thought with a route like that, you're just going to be on it for a long time. So it's a whole different ball game. I mean, I don't know how long you were on it. We'll get to that, but there's a lot of opportunity to sort of, I would imagine get stuck and get very, very frightened. So I wanted to take you back to that time of actually sort of doing it, you know, the night before the morning, who was your partner, all these sort of things. So, you know, how did it feel the night before when you thought, right, well, I've, I'm sort of prepped. I think tomorrow's the day. And, and, and who was your partner? Who was going to be there? You? James Taylor. Right. So the, the night before um, it was his birthday, the day before and I drove from work to belay him on, rare lichen in Ogwen so an e, e9 e89 thing and that was like a really nice session and we already had a really good partnership we've been to Brazil together and you know I felt really comfortable but I was a bit worried he's going to pull the holds off the route because he's so strong this guy <laughs> but apart from that I uh, had a really nice evening belaying him 
And the next day, there was no question he that he was going to come up and belay me without me admitting that I was going to do the route or try the route. He didn't. He just kind of volunteered for it, knowing that it was I was obsessed with it. So that morning, it was still complete denial. I went across the road to V12 to get some skyhooks and I walked to DMM to get some screamers all the time being, oh yeah, no, just to fill my rack up, you know. So Redwood was like... Pressure off yourself in a way. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You know, I should be able to have the nerve or the confidence to say, you know, I, I probably will go and try this, but I couldn't, I couldn't admit it to myself or to my friends or put the pressure on myself that, you know, if I woke up that morning knowing I was going to do it, I just, I would have been stressed the whole day. And I still had to chalk up before I even left my house. I was packing my bag and my hands were sweaty. <laughs> I put my hand in my chalk bag. <laughs> you put chalk on your hands, which is normally what you do when you're climbing, but when you're doing it at home and that's almost like a, yeah, you could tell you're getting in the zone a little bit there already. Yeah. yeah. So on the walk up, you know, it's like a, an hour or something, hour and a half walk up. James and I talked about anything else just trying to pretend that it wasn't happening. He was just entertaining my denial. We get to the crag and there's two old boys dicking around with their ropes and being a bit loud and funny and, oh, who's these old boys, you know? And it was Nick Dixon and Johnny Dawes. Amazing coincidence. Oh, incredible. The, the first two ascensionists of the route. And Nick goes, eh, you here for the first? And I was like, yeah, actually, I am. And I'd never admitted it to anyone. But when you're, when you're in front of the guys that are kind of responsible for your obsession and your strange passion, it, it didn't seem weird anymore. And I wasn't embarrassed. I was like, oh, well, this isn't a strange thing to say in front of these guys. Yeah. They kind of expect it. And Nick, as ever, was keen for, to egg me on, <laughs> encourage it. Did they give you any nuggets of, you know, what, what anything that... You know, was it encouragement? Were they, you know, how, what was their tone from both of them? Because they're, they're oh. both big characters, aren't they? Let's let's be honest. Yeah, they're really big characters, yeah. And they were on fantastic form. The, the two of them together are fantastic. They bounce so well off each other. And they were doing, like, the first ascent of some E7 they'd found. Okay. Right? They're both yeah. in their 50s. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and Johnny, I was, I've been down Indian Faith putting the gear in. So I could put it in order on my rack. Or I mean, how much, how much gear is there? I mean, you, you, we're not talking a big rack here, are we? How many? No, it's a lot, a lot of really bad RPs. So you basically, about two thirds of the way up is a cluster of tiny brass things that are all like the fr a fraction of the size of my little fingernail. The best are like size two, so they weigh a few grams. They're really small. And they can connect them all to with like some slings. You can put sky hooks on, but I, I didn't trust them. I didn't end up putting the little steel hooks on because yeah. they just come off and <laughs> they're really distracting. Yeah. So I was working out how I'd put them on my harness so that I would be able to put them in on the rock without falling off and falling, you know, two thirds of the route and just without anything to catch me, sort of thing. So I wanted that bit to go well. How high up are these brass? So the route's fifty meters long, which is a, quite an unusually long pitch for one pitch but the last 10 meters is, is easy you yeah. could say it's 40 meters yeah. and then they're like 25 30 meters up and getting to them is particularly hard and particularly bold there really is nothing just that section of hard climbing blank climbing before you get to them 
particularly hard. And then the hardest bit would be about five or 10 meters above them where it's steeper and it bulges out. But when I was feeling about that, Johnny abbed down off his new E7 route and he got me to hold his dead ropes that he was abseiling down on. <laughs> he grabbed my RPs. I took out the smallest one, which is an offset zero, which it's, it's a strange bit of kit because you just can't imagine placing it or using it. It's such a, it's such a small thing. You, could, you know, if I, if I had it in my hand, it'd be really hard to see. <laughs> and he fiddled it into this invisible crack in the rock. And he went, I think that's the one that would have caught me. <laughs> yeah. And because and it, it's the last one, he was, he was thinking that they would unzip and the last one would catch him. And it's also the first one you get to. And I looked at him thinking, that's amazing. That's the, that's the bit I need. It's, it's going to happen now. Tied in. How did it, well, first of all, how did it go, the ascent? Talk us through a little bit like that. And then I was just thinking about the partner because normally your climbing partner, you know, they're important. They've got a job to do. But I mean, here with such a serious route, it's a big responsibility and a big pressure, isn't it, on your mate holding the ropes, you know, um, and the interaction between you. I mean, are you, you know, are you quiet when you're climbing? How was it? James is the perfect climbing partner for this. He, partly because he just, he really understood the route and my obsession with it and didn't need to question it and didn't need to justify it to him. And he, you know, as I said, he even entertained my denial the whole time. Um, he was also really confident and maybe perhaps overconfident in my ability. Um, he says I, I looked really strong on it and <laughs> I don't think he could tell how nervous I was. And he did little things like clean my rock shoes when I wasn't looking to make sure that I didn't slip off. And, the, and then the ascent went quite well. I did quite a good routine of getting my head in gear and the first sort of 10, 15 metres went amazing. And I, I really felt like I was, had stepped into my sort of 15-year-old's dream like that dream that I'd had or the night I'd spent awake after reading Neil Gresham's account, wondering what it'd be like to climb this route. I couldn't believe that I was actually doing it. And then the sun came onto the Great Slab, which happens for like a few hours every year because it's north facing or... Slab timing. Yeah, it was midsummer. I just thought, even though I know the earth spins on its axis, it never occurred to me that that would ever happen, that it would ever come onto the face while I was on it. And my hands were considerably, considerably sweatier and I felt quite warm and the holds obviously felt smaller with my sweaty fingers and everything all got a bit tense for the sort of hardest section before you get to that cluster of gear. Managed to keep my head from unravelling. That, that feeling when you start to panic or start to see a stress response. Kind of held it together, got through that section, got to Johnny's little wire, thought, safe. Then fiddled in my cluster of gear, which is all terrible. And you've got to hold on to a tiny hold and press on your feet to put each of the, I don't know, 10 little bits of brass that fiddled into invisible cracks. I don't know. And was left with a web of slingage that felt like it was quite hard to negotiate. I felt like I was caught in this sort of spider's web of bad, bad gear. <laughs> so panicked again and had to improvise out of that. And then I found myself on the... in the contemplation ledge, which is like a, a hand about the size of my open hand, a little so flat ledge. A relatively big, big foothold in context of the route where it's actually about the size of your hand and it's sloping, is it? Yeah, maybe slightly sloping, yeah. But you can put the heel of your rock shoe on it and you could stand there because it's a slab. You could stand there almost indefinitely, which is probably the worst place to have a resting point 
because you're staring up at the bulge of the slab where it's thinnest and steepest and hardest and perhaps the most bold you know you're going to fall a really long way onto really terrible kit but mate, you've got a moment to consider actually what you're doing you get a moment kit, to catch your breath the kit it sounds like it's unlikely it's going to hold yeah i mean there's a lot of kind of folklore around this route and people say that it's impossible for to fall you know you really possible to survive a fall or or that maybe you would and i don't know i don't want to speculate and I probably could have filled a rucksack full of rocks and thrown it off and found that, but I didn't want to know. And it's kind of hard to imagine it holding, but gear surprises you sometimes. And I had one, only one rope, really, really stretchy, thin rope attached to me to minimise drag and maximise stretch. So was the sun still out on this bulge as you went up into this more difficult section? Yeah, the sun was out and... I just had this sketchy section of making up a little bit and trying to work out how to get past all the gear that I placed in the way of my footholds and had this moment. And I even spoke to James and Johnny on the ground. And then when I caught my breath and I had almost enough space to take stock of where I was and I felt my bubble of focus sort of shrink, I just set off. I just realised oh, if I take another moment, I'm going to realise what I'm doing and I'm going to break my bubble of focus and it's going to all unravel. Um, and if I didn't a moment sooner, I wouldn't have been relaxed enough or I wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have been able to recover from that little fright earlier on. So I just set off mid-sentence. <laughs> and James even said, are you climbing? <laughs> but I couldn't, I, I was gone then. I, couldn't, I can't really remember it very well. I was, nothing else was happening. Nothing else was going on. And I wasn't thinking about what might happen. It, it didn't matter what would happen if I fell. My only concern was, climbing and not falling and it was I was perfect it was, was what did it what did it feel like when you you knew you were safe you're at the top you'd done the route I, c- I couldn't really believe it I suppose I suppose I thought it would feel like really special or something but I was just like oh, I just felt amazing <laughs> felt really good and I, I think I climbed past the you get one bit of gear to run out for 10 meters you get like a, a good maybe it's a rock five or something that feels amazing because you've just done what feels like a bit of a solo for 40 meters and then get one good wire and you can then run it out for quite easy climbing for 10 meters. I forgot to put that in because <laughs> I was so happy. <laughs> so I had to down climb for that. I think Nick was laughing at me. Brilliant. What an, yeah, I mean, an amazing experience. Thanks for sharing that. And I, I thinking about the, the mental aspect, was it something you'd have to work at? Was that, did you think that was always one of your strengths in climbing? Because, you know, because not everybody has that. I just remember when we started climbing as kids, well, kids, you know, like 16, you could almost sort of say some people just decided they weren't into both climbing and tread climbing. They always needed a good wire near them. Other people were happy with that or everything that came with, you know, being a long way above kit. And I guess I was, for some random reason, I was in that bracket and maybe I wasn't that strong to start with. And we're all different. What strengths did you have, you know, in those early years leading up to Indian phase? Was it the, the technique? Was it the strength? Was it the mental side? Or, you know, which bit did you have to work harder at? I think the mental side was uh, a quite a strength early on, because it's one of the things that, things that drew me to it, one of the things that I really liked about climbing. When I got into climbing, I was a schoolboy with all the teenage angst, all of the trying to find himself, trying to be a, how he's going to, what kind of man he's going to be, I don't know. And all the worries about school and fitting in and socialising and 
girls and everything. And climbing was an amazing escape. And I think I felt like at school, there were a lot of boundaries and you can try and rebel, but you're, you know, you're still in the same exam hall and the same lessons or wearing the uniform that you're told to wear. And you don't have much sort of independence or ownership over what's going on. And then all the challenges at school are quite arbitrary to me, or they were. And they were arbitrated by examiners or school boards or teachers. And, and the other challenges were social. They were arbitrated by people or what's cool or social standards. It's quite strange. Because climbing, the judge is gravity and it's infallible and you can't argue with it. And it's predictable. It's famously constant. You really do have a responsibility for what's going on. And the, the challenge is quite tangible. And the, the consequences are very real and they're not abstract. Like they're, you know, they're right there. It's like right below you, the ground. And I love that sense of responsibility and ownership and independence. And then the freedom as well, the sort of bubble that I would step into to, to do the sketchy routes felt like a real escape and that nothing else was going on. I didn't have to worry about homework or what my parents were going to say when I was late back in or what I was supposed to be doing. It felt like a real freedom and a, I got really attached to that early on. Lovely, wonderful description. Do you think roots like Indian face, are they a young person's kind of, do you need to be young to be trying things like that? Do you think, or I don't know, how old are you now? 28. All right, you're still quite young. I just wondered if there's a even bold climbers that they get to a certain age where you, they start to rein it in. Because that's, I mean, there are lots of E9s now, aren't they, up and down the country in Britain. And, and we're sort of famous as a country for sort of track climbing and the heritage of it. But Indian face still has a big reputation, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. And I think to some extent, like there is some truth in that, that it's a young man's game. I think young men are sort of hardwired to take a bit more risk and there's like an even illusionary benefit for that and as soon as you get a bit older and you have other worries or you have a family or you start to have some responsibility you you either don't have the space for that risk or it really just doesn't seem tolerable anymore it's not appropriate i think it's quite well documented that young men are a bit more risky i think when nasa was sending people into space in the 60s they were all in their mid-20s they weren't they weren't in their 30s or 40s they weren't experienced astronauts or anything because it had never been done before and they were good at taking that risk. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning it as well, as we know that there are lots of amazing women climbing, track climbers as well, and lots of E9s have been done. And, and I guess that might be a sort of a, I don't know if any women are thinking, you know, Indian face, and it'd be interesting how that plays out. Oh, it's un undeniably, like, I can think of a, like a handful of women that are more than capable of doing that. It's definitely not a question of whether they can do it. It's almost whether they're stupid enough to do it. By the way, I'm not being like Nick Dixon here, nudging anyone towards it. <laughs> no, no. no, I mean, I've had the conversation with women that I know that could do it. Of course, you know, Hazel could obviously do it. Emma could do it. Like, but whether they, you know, whether the motivation's there, like, or, you know, whether the obsession or the derangement or whatever you'd call it. Really, <laughs> you need to go do that. Yeah. No, well said. It's a real sort of um, personal journey. And, and I, mean, I think really hard to describe that to non-climbers. Like, I, you know, I, 
as a mountain guy to take people out into the, the mountains skiing and doing things. But I think something like Indian Face, even a lot of those people just would really struggle <laughs> with the concept of why you would want to put yourself in that position. I wanted to sort of jump a little bit and think about sports climbing. And you obviously are somebody who seems to love both, you know, the trad climbing and then the sports climbing again for people who are listening who maybe don't know what that means, but that's where you're climbing up uh, a rock face where there are bolts that are already drilled into the rock. So it's much more about pushing yourself and testing yourself in a different way, isn't it? Still can be a lot of pressure mentally, but um, if you're doing it right, you shouldn't be in great danger. <laughs> um, having said that, I want to talk about the Frankenjura and uh, some of the places in the Frankenjura, the first bolt is a long way up, isn't it? It's like a tradition. So it's kind of like sport climbing, but with a difference, depending on what route you're, you're in. I loved your film, by the way, and anybody listening, if they've not seen it, uh, you call it Spankenjura, which is quite funny. <laughs> so you, uh, and I, I got the impression in the film that you your first week or so in the Frankenjura, which is the sort of birthplace in some ways of, of, of sport climbing out in Germany, you, you, you had a, a tough time. Maybe you could talk us a little bit about what's so special about the Frankenjura and, and what was it like, uh, those first few sort of routes? That was great fun, that film. But the first week I spent in the Frankenjura, he has absolutely spanked by it. It's a yeah, famously quite, quite tough style um, the whole, there's a lot of pockets there and a lot of the holds, whether they're pockets or not, are very small. And it's kind of unforgiving if you don't have the, the finger strength or you're not used to it. And the bolts can feel pretty, a bit of a punishment having to climb quite far above a bolt doing the hardest moves possible to get to the next. And it's really bolted in such a way that it's like minimalist bolting. Only the bolts that they really need. There's only ever one bolt that will catch you. And if you miss that bolt, then you're in trouble. So it's punishing in that way. But also the style, yeah, the holds are really small. and Very powerful, very bolder, isn't it? Suddenly, you know, you just need this explosive something there. Yeah. But at the same time, although the holds are all really small, there are a lot of them, a lot of very, very small features. So when you learn to climb and you take pay a lot of attention and spend a bit of time trying the same move over and over, there are subtleties that you can learn to make the most of it. So although it is really powerful, it's not just a brutish area. They say crafts are over there, like power pig. You don't have to just be a power pig. You can technique your way around it. And actually, I think the best, some of the best climbers in the, in the area are just really good at making the most out of subtle features. Yeah, and, to, and just to be clear, and Frank and you're, you know, 13,000 routes and there are a lot of easy routes there as well. It's not all hard, is it? And, and my daughter actually did her first ever lead in the Frank and Euro, which I must say was pretty horrifying to watch because it was the, <laughs> this four plus with four bolts in it. Uh, it was really stressful. Uh, my mate belayed. Um, it just kind of happened suddenly. She was up there. But what, what, I, what came across uh, about you in the film, to me personally, was that you were somebody who almost didn't mind putting yourself out there in a sort of vulnerable position, maybe failing on a route, because um, we talked about taking risks in sort of a trad climbing sense, but here you, sometimes with sports climbing, you, it's not in a dangerous way, but you, you're putting yourself out there, aren't you, in terms of whether you're going to be able to do this route or not. So I just wondered if you had any thoughts about that, your attitudes to sort of goal setting and failure. Yeah, I think they've improved a lot, my attitudes towards goal setting and failure. And that, I think that 
film that you're talking about is quite a big step along that way. And I think sport climbing has been a really good journey for that. Like you've really got to fail a lot and get used to failing and have quite a positive conception of failure to have any kind of success. I think over my the past sort of five or six years that I've been sport climbing a lot, I've had to really learn to find all of the small successes, the, the real successes, like the small gains made. And that might be learning to move a bit more efficiently or to actually just have a better mindset and approach things a bit better and have a clearer head and change my expectations. And that's been a really good journey. Now, there's a quote in the film, which I think is what we're sort of maybe moving towards, but this is from the Spanking Euro, but sometimes you don't believe it's going to happen. So there's no pressure to do it. You're going further and further into this little quest. There's no pressure. You're not going to let yourself down or anyone else down. You've already climbed further than you thought you would. You're somewhere that you shouldn't be. So you can just keep going with a cool head. I thought it was quite nice. Does that ring true? Yeah, that's a real sort of window into my mindset at the time. You can really hear how much expectation was playing on my mind there, I think. I can really remember the route that I'm talking about, actually. It's really interesting that climbing would be much easier when I'm in a position where I have no expectations about the outcome of where I am. It's already burst through into a place where I shouldn't be. I've really climbed further than I thought I could be. And, and now that there are no expectations, I don't have any preconceptions of what I should be able to do. The, the burden is off me and it's interesting that so much of the battle is just the burden of expectation that I've put on myself and I imagine other people are putting on me. Yeah. It's strange, isn't it, how psychological climbing is, it seems like. I've got friends that are so strong and the potential, for whatever reason, in their careers, they've just reined it right in. Or so they've, for whatever reason, they've just not wanted to really put themselves in that position where maybe it's not going to work out or they're going to fail. Or it's, um, it's just really interesting that why some people want to put themselves in or willing to put themselves into that position where you, you, know, you might have a tough time. Yeah, I think the more that you're able to do that, I think the more progress you'll make. I think obviously it's maybe intuitively we think the more we fail, the worse we're doing, right? But obviously every failure is a, is a sign that you're pushing yourself enough and you, you will learn from every one of them. I think actually it's something we might struggle from the British tradition of doing a lot of trad climbing, which is actually kind of, you know, legitimately harder to fail or harder to be in a position where you're going to fail a lot because this whole safety system that you've got to set up yourself, it's improvised place protection, the traditional systems. It's, we, I think we do have a bit of a culture of failing less, I think, the traditional British way. Yeah, more, I'm thinking about the people I started with. It's much more about getting to a good place and, you know, we, rather than place one good why, you know, why not place six in a couple of cans? <laughs> and you definitely didn't dyno. And so to go to sports climbing where it's just so different, having that different mindset. And certainly took me a while to get into it. Do you find it easy to switch from a hard trad route that you might be head pointing to red pointing? Is there some overlap or are they completely different? Perhaps with the head point, red point thing. Yeah, where you, where you might practice something on bolts and then on a sport climb and then learn it. And then on the trad side, you might practice it on a top rope and try it for real on lead on the kit. Perhaps it, it's definitely a different situation. You, you really can fail a lot on the, on the sport climb and you've got the freedom to just push out, not knowing whether you're going to make it to the next bolt, not knowing what will happen. And, and that's the game getting closer to that position where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. 
and there's kind of a feeling of adventure in there we kind of think of sport climbing as not being adventurous but actually setting off and not knowing not having any idea of what the outcome will be but just just going you know in a sort of really athletic way that does feel a bit like a bit of an adventure but it does translate well because all of the all of that performance and all that fitness and everything are going to make that head point easier but there's a very strong difference in the head pointing is usually if you set off on something like Indian face or something very bold is that's the go you have to do it you, you can't have any uncertainty and you've got to say to yourself that this is the go you, you can't get it wrong this time and so that's really different but when it comes to on-site in between trad and sport I think that's also really hard I actually think the transition there doesn't work too well because I think there's a lot more going on with trad climbing there's the sort of skill of putting the gear in yeah and the skill of doing that on the go and being and improvising um you have to kind of be current with that and have in your head really familiar a lot of familiarity with all the gear that's on your harness and know exactly where it's going to go and how to find it and be familiar with the rock type to be anywhere near what you're capable of on an on-site and the whole style of climbing the movement itself is a lot more conservative you kind of want to know that you're secure in a move and as you say you don't die now so you're living in north wales you're based in north wales and i mean what makes north wales a good base i mean apart from the weather which definitely is suboptimal there's a lot going on in north wales we've got a lot of coastline um a lot of different rock types so we're lucky enough to have mountain rhyolite and dolerite sea cliff quartzite slate in the quarries sea cliff limestone and outcrops of limestone We've got crags in the mountains, crags at the roadside, boulders at the roadside, boulders in the mountains, sport climbing, track climbing, hybrid weird stuff in the past. We've got, got everything. And, and, and a lot of psyched people, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's as much as anything, the community of people around us. And it's not just climbers and not just hill walkers or mountain people. It might be kayakers or paddlers or cyclists or runners or just interesting folk around. And it creates a real, really nice environment. Fantastic. And your work in the outdoors, Tell me a little bit about that in terms of why you think it's important. What do you get out of it? And, and, and obviously right now, and a little bit, I mean, it's, it's very tough times, isn't it? But maybe go back to pre-COVID and, you know, when you're sort of busy working in that environment, what do you feel like you found your thing? Yeah. So first of all, like the, the, the value of work, I suppose, most of all, I get to work with like adults and, and young people and I work with climbers and non-climbers and sometimes it might be coaching climbers to be better climbers or instructing them or or sometimes it'll be working with complete novice or people that have never left their city or whatever and it's their first introduction to adventurous activities or whatever to speak to the value of that or outdoor education is is really hard because oh i don't know where to start and i really can't overstate the value of outdoor education but it's, it's obviously worth talking about i really don't know where to start with that but i suppose what people that maybe haven't worked in outdoor education wouldn't know and particularly what climbers or like outdoors folk like us mountain people might not know about the average person how little experience they'll have of the outdoors or nature or adventurous activities and what most climbers almost certainly wouldn't know or most outdoorsy people almost certainly wouldn't know is what it's like not to have the benefit of adventurous activities and not and what the counterfactual would be, what would it be like if we had never 
been on holidays with our parents to the Lake District or done the Duke of Edinburgh Ward thing or had that session climbing with a mountaineering club or something. Most people live in cities and most people you know, can't see the stars at night and most people, I suppose, don't have a garden and most people don't have access to the outdoors like we do. And that'll mean that, for example, they've never packed a bag. They've never had to pack a rucksack for a day and be dependent only on what's in that rucksack. But most people that live in a city will never be far from a vending machine or a shop or anything. You'd have to take a, if I take a group of 12, 16-year-olds out for a walk, it's really hard for me to tell them that, hey, you're going to really need this bottle of water. And they'll tell me they don't like water. Oh, no, no, you're going to want water. It's the hottest day of the year. And then, but look, oh, I'll just take it on the way round. You know, no, 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 there's going to be no water. And they've never had that experience of having to think ahead and be independent. Or everything they need comes from a shop or a vending machine or something and ends up in the bin or on the floor or something. Whereas in an outdoor environment, you've got a much more realistic, um, it's much more, it's a real environment, isn't it? You have to take your water with you and you have to source it and it has to go back in your bag and, and then when it comes to some of the particularly young girls that I might work with, they might want the water and it's the hottest day of the year, but they won't drink a drop because they already need a pee and they've never been anywhere without a public toilet. And they really, really, really need a pee and they're really, really, really thirsty because it's the hottest day of the year. They won't drink a drop and it's a really hard thing to deal with. And I think for quite a lot of outdoor people, we might look at city folk a bit like that and might think, oh, that's silly. Actually, we're actually just very fortunate and it's hard for us to realise that if we had never had the opportunity to get outdoors, the opportunity to do these adventurous activities we do, we'd be the same. And it's actually a sign of they've been deprived of those experiences. And then there's the other side of it that was maybe even more significant to me is not just the, the experience in nature or outdoors, it's, it's the actual challenge, the, the type of challenge. And I said earlier that when I started climbing, I really enjoyed how real that challenge felt and how school and school life felt very sort of abstract, those challenges and arbitrary and things. A lot of people have only ever been challenged in those environments. So you might get young people that have only ever been challenged in a framework made of letters and numbers that is examined by examiners or teachers or something. And maybe they don't fall into that system very well, but they're squeezed to fit into the system and they think they're pretty stupid or not very competent and their teachers might think that too and even their parents might think that and they think they're not very capable but you give them a real challenge or you put them on a top rope and they really believe they can't make it off the ground and that's a fixed outcome for them but they make it a foot two foot maybe a few meters off the ground and that's completely changed their perception of what they're capable of and to most of us outdoors people, we, we have similar experiences, but might be at the other end of the climb. You know, it might be, um, I'll have that experience pushing my grade in sport climbing from 8C to 8C plus or something silly. But they having the same experience, but for the first time in their first session, they'll be changing their perception of what they're capable of. And, and they'll also have a completely new understanding of how they can challenge themselves. And if, it's just hard for us, I think, as mountain people or whatever, to understand what it'd be like if we'd never had, never been challenged in that way before. So it's, 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 I guess in a way we're talking a little bit about growth mindset and then they're moving into that space. 
you know, and uh, at a different level, but it is that growth mindset and a little bit about going back to the hiking with the rucksack and, you know, just basic survival stuff. I'm thinking about, you know, lower down the sort of Maslow chain of, of, of you know, just those basic things you need to do to survive, which they, they've not done before. So lots of powerful things in there. So obviously really important um, work. Um, obviously really tough at the moment with COVID and, you know, and a, and a lot of stuff out there where people are saying, look, you know, because of the, the challenges during COVID for young people, particularly um, mental health stuff, and actually probably the outdoors is the perfect antidote to that. But I guess we just don't know what it's going to look like. <laughs> I mean, it's just so unknown, isn't it, in terms of how this is going to play out, how outdoor centres are going to be positioned from the business point of view and, you know, what the appetite is going to be for sending kids away on trips and things like that. I know my daughter did um, a week uh, in, in a sort of towards the end of primary. And, I mean, it's still one of the biggest things that she's ever done, even though obviously she's done outdoor stuff with us, but it's the fact that she was with her young peers and, uh, you know, without us. And yeah, I mean, mm. it's so powerful, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's actually a really important part of it that we forget that doing it with your peers is quite different. And for some people, that might be the only time they spend outside of their kind of household and their like microculture of their household. You come from a family that doesn't have that that tradition of doing outdoor stuff. Like the only time you'll do it. And maybe you're from like a you're from an immigrant family, you know, second or third generation or something, and it's going to be really different spending the night with different folks and i think I, I don't know about north wales because obviously i've not been allowed to come over i've not been over but certainly i'm based in the peak district we're based here and certainly seen in the gaps where we've come out of lockdown and some of the more like relaxed lockdowns where seeing people hiking around upon sort of standage edge and stuff that maybe are a bit new to it and a bit different and um you know there's been sort of complaints about me you know, some people a bit more litter or stuff like that. But I mean, it's been, I think, quite good to see different types of people out hiking and, and stuff. And I guess it's uh, it's important for us to sort of make these, you know, if, if people are new to climbing or hiking, just make them welcome, I guess, in a way. Absolutely, yeah. I think, I mean, you mentioned litter there. My first reaction is like, oh my God, people are dropping litter. What, what on earth? But to be honest, now, now I think of it kind of another way. Like if people are out and they drop litter, now they really, really shouldn't be doing that, but they probably are the people that should be out. If yeah. They, if they don't have the initiative not to drop litter, then those are the people that probably need to experience outdoors the most. And we've got to, I don't know, have that conversation, but have it carefully and, and still welcome that. And I think one of the biggest barriers to change and with access to the outdoors or removing the barrier of access or whatever is our perceptions of that as i don't know established outdoorsy people it's, it's like you know encouraging that diversity of people that might just be city people then also the diversity of activity i'm not a competition climber i don't really think competition climbing is that cool but it's cool that there's that sort of diversity activity in, in climbing and that'll appeal to other people and indoor climbing walls are amazing like that's it brings so many more people into climbing so much more accessible for so many people yeah. oh, it's awesome and even though 
I suppose I do indoor climb, but I'm not really an indoor climber. I should really encourage that. I think that's great. And it's quite easy for maybe you or I or some old boys to be like, oh, well, back in my day, we didn't do it that way. We didn't go indoors, but I think we should really encourage it. I think there's something about education. I mean, I know a friend of mine pointed out that, you know, when you drive, for example, from Sheffield into the Peak District and you see the little millstone uh, wheel, which is a sign that you're entering into a national park. But actually, most people, if you're new to it, you have no idea what that is. It's just like a little mill, mill wheel. And you have no idea you're going into a national park. You don't really know. It's just an extension of the city. And so there's, you know, whereas in the States, there'd probably be a lot more information and sort of, you know, I mean, that's gone that in some of the national parks there where you've got ranges and things, it's almost the other way. And maybe if these places are going to become much busier after lockdown, then there's just sort of uh, general advice, isn't there? That, that needs to be sort of given to people, if you like. Even at school, you know, at school kids a lot yeah. more this, like you say, on, on, on education and, and, and getting people into the outdoors. Yeah, I agree. I think we've got we've got to make got to make a move ourselves. We've got to make that information available, right? I really think that you could drive from London to Slamberis, walk up Snowden, walk back down and drive back to London without ever seeing a sign about not dropping a banana skin, for example. I think we've got to make that information available. <laughs> You've got to do our part to spread the word. Right? Uh, I mean, I want to move us on a little bit because I, 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 I'd, I'd like to go to Yosemite, but um, in our chat, just thinking about iconic climbs. I mean, North Wales, you know, I mean, it is known for all these famous iconic routes and they're not all E9, which is a relief. <laughs> and climbers, you know, come from all over the world and, it's really nice, isn't it, when they come and they're blown away. I had two mates that came over during the summer uh, from Chamonix, Chamonix guides. One of them actually teaches at the, at the guide school in Chamonix. And he, he was like, he climbed on the grid. He was like, I want to go to the slate quarries. I was like, yeah, but it's like 35 degrees. But he was like, I want to go anyway. And then we met him down in Pembroke, met them. And they were just blown away, you know, with North Wales, blown away with Pembroke. And, and Bruno and Lara, I mean, they've literally been all over the world, you know, and it was really nice to see that. And I know that, you know, I think Alex Honnold came over and, and, and spent some time in North Wales on one of the international meets. I don't know if you know that, but there was a, I believe, I believe he, he, he bravely stepped into Johnny Dawes' car and went for a little tour. Did you hear that story? One of the bravest things Honnold's done. <laughs> I know he sold an El Cap, but I didn't know he got in Johnny's car. I mean, you know, free solo and all that. You know, winning Oscars, that's a small fry. He actually got into the front seat <laughs> of Johnny's car. And apparently the journey was basically uh, up <laughs> from from Berris up to Penny Pass and back. And they did two laps. And uh, one of the people that was in the car said that, yeah, he looked pretty white, uh, <laughs> expressionless. And also reckoned Johnny had gone through uh, a clutch and a set of brake pads in those two laps. Johnny said something about he just didn't understand rubber or something. But <laughs> that leads us nicely on to Yosemite. El Capitan, obviously massively famous now in the sort of general public domain because of the film Free Solo. It's a big piece of rock, isn't it, in California? And it's like five minutes from the road, is it, to walk up there? Yeah, maybe a little bit longer. It depends if you're carrying a haul bag or not. Yeah, okay. And 3,000 <laughs> feet, I mean... What was it like for you to do, you know, to be sort of stood there about to, what did it feel like to about to step onto El Cap? Was your, was it El Corazon, your first route there? Corazon, yeah. So you weren't, uh, you weren't breaking yourself in gently? No, I really wanted to get on the board. 
wanted to go big. But also, Dan McManus had done like all the other routes. <laughs> that, that that he's also based in North Wales, Dan, isn't he, as well? Yeah, that's right, yeah. But what did you feel like, just about to set off with your whole bag, and how much food did you have? Not enough. Quite, I think we did actually plan. We thought, oh, well, we'll try and do it in sort of five or six days, but we'll take an extra bit of food. So I think we did have enough food, but we didn't have much variety. It was all smash and pot noodles or something like that. I don't know why we didn't we're more creative with our kitchen, but I can't complain. I didn't make, make the decision myself. I didn't contribute to that. So you've, got, you've got a massive bag. There's just two of you, two ropes, a bit of kit, and you're heading off on this very difficult climb on a 3,000-foot cliff. So what did it feel like just setting off? I think setting off, it felt like every step mattered. Even those first few pictures are quite slabby in there. It's a particularly glassy bit. It's not completely easy, but it should be ground that can move quite quickly over. But it was, it really did strike me that if we fell or if I made a, sl- a slip or we weren't, we did a bad job of hauling the bag, it would cost us a lot of time. And every step really mattered because it could set you back an hour, which means you don't get to your portal edge site and where you don't get, you'll get to the, harder pitch at the wrong time of day it'll be too hard to climb or something like that we actually made a bit of an error even before we got on the wall we didn't account for american daylight savings the clocks went back i think and we we caught we got caught behind like three three other parties trying to do free blast because does it start start there yeah exactly it starts the same as um free rider and quite a lot of routes start off free blast and you can do free blast as its own little loop say little it's like 10 pitches and you can do that as a little loop on its yep. own. So a lot of people do that. And we, we were just at the back of the queue. So we are desperate to get on the wall. We just stood around there with Dan's dry humour, just watching other people climb. So we missed the first half a day just doing that. And I guess what you touched on earlier is really interesting. And it's about, on the one hand, I guess, you're trying to climb really well and be efficient uh, and be safe but not lose time. So you, you need to be fast, but you need to be sort of good and excellent at the same time. So it's quite a sort of a bit of tension there, isn't there, all the time on the way up the wall? Yeah, it makes me think about, if you watch like videos of Honold climbing, he doesn't move fast. He's not like fast twitch, you know, but he never stops. I think that's probably how you climb efficiently on granite or on a big wall. You don't need to rush. You need to like not dither. I think that's probably what I needed to learn did you and dan know each other you climbed together quite a lot before and 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 what's he like as a character climbed quite a lot with dan i think he's great he's such a good character you must know him i do a little bit yeah but i love that by the way just i I love that quote on your website (laughs) can you remember what were you what what does he say so this when i go to your homepage, which is advertising your sort of guiding and coaching services oh yeah yeah he, uh, he says, uh, Angus is a really good climber, but I taught him everything he knows. Yeah. <laughs> I just think that's wonderful. He's brilliant. You should hire this guy. But by the way, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> it's just classic. And very brave of you to have that on your site. It's almost like, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if you're advertising him or not, rather than yourself. <laughs> yeah. so that, Dan's view is really important. I think it, it's so much of his character and it's so much of what, what makes sort of a friendship or a partnership. I think it's one of the reasons I was really keen to do LCAP with him, apart from the, the fact he'd been up there 10 times already. He's a character I can spend a lot of time with and not get bored or not feel uncomfortable, not feel I need to say anything, you know, I can just hang out with Dan. 
He's and a speed tip, isn't he? Is that? Yeah, he's yeah he's yeah he was, did physics and then health economics PhD, I think, which he was just finishing World War on the Wall. <laughs> he wanted to bring a book. I think he wanted to bring a textbook on the wall. I was like, Dan, you won't let us bring enough water. <laughs> You're not bringing that textbook on the wall. So you, you head off of the wall, you, you, you get to the ledges of Free Blast, and then you have Hazel, your partner, and a, and a bunch of mates come up there. Is that right? Yeah. First night. Yeah. You were like, there's, you're going to have a party up there. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. There's fixed lines from from that ledge all the way to the ground so that you can easily kind of do it as a little loop, as I said. But it means you could also go up there and they just go out there jugging equipment. And I think about four of them jugged the lines and even brought dinner with them. So we like, had the dinner. How far is that from the ground and how long would it take them? Do more? That must be 250 meters. And Fat Boy, he makes really good food. He had cooked up a curry in Camp 4. I think the girls brought biscuits or something, and Bunny brought beer. They all came up. We had a picnic awesome. uh, a third of the way up the wall. <laughs> and, then, and then they upsail off, you spend the night, and then you get up into the meat of it. Uh, how many days were you on the wall altogether? It ended up being a week, seven days. It was, I think we planned for five or six, but that false start and then... I don't know, maybe just some ropes getting caught around hall bags on some unusual pitches. Some learning experiences. Yeah. yeah. Which maybe, you know, with Dan, with all of his experience and having been up there 10 times, like still happens, you can just get wrapped up. And it was just the case that on that second day, we got to one of the crooks pitches in the midday sun and these sort of slopers you've got to hold on to just felt like <laughs> really wet and greasy and just, it just couldn't be climbed. So we're there just wasting all our skin on it rather than getting there in time and getting through I'll that. I'll tell you what, maybe, because you wrote that brilliant piece that was was uh, put out. Um, could you read a little bit from that excerpt, which I think would give not just climbers, but also non-climbers a little bit of an insight into what it's like to be climbing up <laughs> a vertical and overhanging wall um, that's, you know, 3,000 feet high. Which day is this? Or so this will be, I think this is the end of day three. We've just like find a climb that pitch that was too hot for us to climb that morning and then quested off across the wall where you can't aid climb. So in a section of the wall that there is no one, it's just us, which is oh, it's such a cool place to be. Take it away. The ledge was sweet. Just enough room for, for us to prop up our hall bags and set the portal ledge up beside them. We even had a corner of the ledge to shit on. What a luxury. We were on our own now. There was, there was the odd head torch at Mammoth way below, some at the base of the wall, but no voices. We were committed. Below us, the wall dropped away into the huge heart feature of El Cap, making Absal descent impossible and ascent through the corners above the only way out. That evening, like every other, I tended to new cuts and scrapes, trying to keep the crumbled granite crystals, the dirt and general grime from inhabiting my broken skin. Scabs formed over old scabs, fingernails were broken or stuffed with chalk and dirt, and my muscles complained of overuse. I'm going to give up climbing, Dan said. You always say that, I said. I always mean it. I just never get round to it, he smiled. You get to know your climbing partner pretty well on a wall. I will cook in one pot, eat from it, lick the spoon and hand it to Dan for his turn. There was no chance we would waste precious water on cleaning, and any we used to cook with had to be consumed too. Morning tea always tasted of instant mash or noodles. 
there was little privacy for going to the toilet, half hanging from a bolt with my trousers pulled from under my harness and a polythene bag stretched over my ass. Dan would just try to ignore me at a meter's distance, despite my attempts at conversation. Needless to say, we each had an intimate understanding of how the other's digestive system was coping with wall food. The following morning, Dan made short work of the pitch we had left unfinished and I followed it clean. Once again, we had just enough luck or competence to avoid taking a massive step back. We then dismantled the ledge and climbed another desperate slab pitch to reach the bottom of the huge corner system, which stretched six pitches up and entered in an impressive roof. The traverse of this roof was thought to be the hardest pitch on the route, and it was usually what people talked about when we told them we were going to try El Corazon. I set off into the corners, finally escaping the sun. The first two pitches involved very three-dimensional climbing with huge flakes, which would themselves be crags in the UK. The sense of isolation grew as we climbed deeper into the corner system, out of, out of view from the rest of the walls. With my knees and ankles wedged in the cracks, spanning the corner and elbowing, elbowing my way up, I reached a huge narrowing chimney that resembled the bottom half of an hourglass. You'll be fine, Dan told me. It's just like the climbing wall back in Wales. I was obviously nervous, knowing that I'd have to wriggle up the chimney without gear until it was narrow enough for our biggest cam, at which point it constricted quickly to spit me out into an overhanging corner crack. I took my helmet off and climbed up to the bottleneck. There was nothing to hold on to, only the walls of the crack to press against, but my hands and feet slipped uselessly on the rock until I fell. Any amount of effort I could summon seems futile. With a mixture of slipping, pulling on cams and swearing, I dogged my way to the top of the pitch, having lost the hope of climbing El Cap somewhere in the back of that crack. Wonderful. Thanks, Angus, for sharing that. I mean, so rich, so much there, managing the skin, going to the loo. I think the humour, that kind of bond between you comes across really well, that kind of eccentric banter relationship. Uh, and if anybody wants to read the whole article, it's on UKC, isn't it, I think? Yeah, so, yeah. Right, so people can go and read the whole thing. Fantastic. And I think higher up the wall, I can't remember, what you, you get in a lot higher and suddenly um, Alex Honnold appears, doesn't he? Uh, with Emily Harrington. Yeah. Um, which must be, must have been quite a, quite a moment. And I think apparently, didn't he, uh, he was referring to you as a, as a, as a man's man or something, which I thought was, <laughs> was quite funny. Cause I remember when my friend Paul Pritchard, who was also based in Clanberries was out in America and they were, the Americans were almost sort of shocked that these, thin kind of skinny emaciated climbers in in, in lycra tights in the 80s could actually climb anything so you, you obviously sort of broke that stereotype alex honnold obviously thought you were the real deal <laughs> apparently yeah i don't know he's got a thing hazel says he's always hitting on me i don't know what it is maybe we've got some sort of bond right well no worries but yeah i mean well what an experience you're up there and i mean you know we talked about indian face earlier but this is a whole Different game, a week, looking after your skin. I mean, running out of food, the heat. Um, and then right at the top, I believe Hazel kind of hikes round and abseils in. I mean, must have been amazing, that final bit. Yeah, that, that, that whole, that moment perched on top of the ball. In fact, when we, that ledge where we bumped into Honold and Emily Harrington, Emily was doing like, um, she's trying to do a, a, in a day, a free ascent of um, 
Golden Gate, which we, she recently did actually. Wow. And I just emerged from this roof pitch that I described in that ep- exit. One of the best pitches of climbing I'd ever done, and it was kind of worth the 800 meters of climbing to get there to do this amazing pitch under this roof. And I emerged out on that ledge really high on the wall. And she said um, she'd left the ground at 4 a.m. that morning. And I said, well, it took us five days to get here. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. But this feeling of being in this amazing position, but <laughs> she just left, left home this morning. Wow. That, that feeling, though, yeah, being high on the wall and every day of effort and all the little tricks, all the care we'd taken to, to not fall or to, to manage all the water carefully and everything all coming together, all the little small efforts coming into culminating in the that final few meters <laughs> hazel abbing in out of nowhere pretty memorable brilliant and i mean obviously hazel's climbed a lot on there and i wondered just hanging out with with hazel i know she does mental coaching and she's big on that side and obviously that achieved amazing things is there any nuggets that she's that you've picked up that's helped you in your own climbing yeah quite a, quite a lot i think What's the big, any one thing you would say? I think the mindset side of things, kind of think about what my motivations are and what my approach to climbing is, can make climbing more fun, improve my like performance and my enjoyment of climbing, like knowing why I'm doing it or, or what my sort of ambition is that day and what I'm really trying to get. Am I just trying to finish the route or am I trying to improve? I'm trying to be a better climber or more a more skillful climber or what's my ambition here and that just the shift of focus from just being goal orientated and just thinking about what I can achieve basically bringing it to oh how am I approaching this like maybe the achievement is just in those small gains and yeah that's improved my climbing like and how I perform but it's also more fun I think I always like as I said earlier I did I was always interested in the mental side of climbing but I didn't realise that how well that factored in in just all areas, just not when it was just bold or dangerous, but focusing on my psychology when it's, even when it's safe, even in sport climbing is really valuable. Yeah, and having fun is, is always good. That's <laughs> yeah, the main thing. Yeah. Difficult to plan, isn't it, in terms of dreams right now, because we don't really know how it's all going to play out with, with COVID. But I wanted to put you on the spot and imagine... Um, a little challenge I've been doing with people. So you imagine you're, you're, you're caught in a storm for 10 days. All right. And um, could be on a wall or somewhere and you can only have one meal um, each day. It's got to be the same meal. So, but you can have anything, anything you want. What would be your, your ideal meal for those 10 days? Would you say? Can I have like an Indian tally? Yeah. You can have whatever you want. I'll have one of them. You can hold it up there, but yeah, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> That sounds- have it on like a tally plate like you do in India and you like you've oh, got yeah. all the little oh yeah oh amazing with a little Man. bit of belief and everything <laughs> yeah that'd be great because it, it's always like you've got enough different little masalas yeah. there that I like it a bit of variety yeah wonderful wonderful and one luxury item you can have one luxury item maybe maybe an e-reader is that lame can I have an e-reader no you can have like that. a like a book yeah. <laughs> with loads of books you might run out of charge yeah, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be wanting to sit and read. Unless, like, enough chocolate to last 10 days. I'd probably miss the chocolate more. A bit of a fiend for chocolate. We can, yeah. 
You can dream I, about that. You've got your yeah, time. I'll dream about that, yeah. yeah. I have the e-reader, I think it, yeah, probably better for me, for me than all the chocolate. Angus, really appreciate your time, mate, and it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for sharing uh, your journey so far. All the best in the future. Yeah, thanks for your time, and thanks for putting up with my rambling. No, <laughs> Go on. it's been brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. And I look forward to bringing you more stories and interviews very soon.